We are committed to creating a safe and supportive space for our guests and listeners, and to provide information and tools that will help our listeners understand, manage, and overcome trauma. We understand that the healing journey can bring up challenging emotions. Therefore, we want to warn our audience that certain episodes may contain discussions or stories that could be triggering for some individuals. The content of the podcast is for educational and informative purposes only, and we encourage you to practice self-care and discretion while listening, and to reach out to a trusted support system or professional if you feel overwhelmed and need help on your healing journey. So Susan, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. I, you know, I found you, um, I think it was on Podmaster, which what Matt Podmaster? One of, one of those. Yeah, one of those. Something like that. Right. Um, and as I said to you a few <laughs> minutes ago, your, your profile was really interesting and I just wanted to, um, briefly go over it. Um, so the audience can see, <clears throat> and then there's a lot to be said in, in your, um, also in this, uh, we were talking about as well. And so in 19, in the 1970s, <laughs> you founded a rape crisis center, which, there wasn't that around. Um, in the 1980s, you represented battered women in divorce proceedings. And that's one of the areas we were kind of talking about, that there wasn't a lot of protection in the 80s for women at all. Mm -hmm. and, or and not then, even shelters. There weren't even shelters. There weren't much. even shelters? Most of the shelters came up in the late 80s, maybe a few in the early 80s. But it uh, when I moved to Connecticut, there was no shelter. I moved to Connecticut here in 1981. Oh, my gosh. That is horrible. And then you're an attorney, so you've litigated sex discrimination cases, which is huge. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1990s, you lost your 19-year-old niece to um, her ex-boyfriend. He shot and killed her. Mm -hmm. And so it caused you to become an advocate for women's rights, which, you know, out of something very sad, you know, you're able to help a lot of women, mm -hmm. which I think is wonderful. And then the area, we'll kind of touch on these, but the one area that I really kind of wanted to focus on... Um, and it's your own healing journey that you created this thriver zone. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a healing place for women who want to reclaim their lives after, after abuse. And then you're also the author of two books, which I find interesting, the thriver zone series and the best revenge series. So I kind of did an introduction of you, but if you want to <laughs> dive in a little more, I'm sure you've got a lot more to share. Okay. Well, um, I actually have six books out there. Oh. The, they're the two, they're two series. But each each series has three books, so you can actually see them beside me. So the Thriver Zone series are workbooks. They're nonfiction books. They're my material that I've used over the years um, in kind of a workbook kind of format. And then the three novels in the Best Revenge series, those are actually loosely based on my niece's story. I, I didn't really want to write a memoir. That's, that's hard. Um, and gut-wrenching. So I decided to make it into a three-part novel series um, that sort of takes a similar scenario. And I changed a lot of it just because emotionally I couldn't deal with some yeah. of it. But trying to talk about in story form, which sometimes gives people more information or gives them in a more palatable way that, you know, learning stories, we love to hear people's stories we can connect um, with stories a lot of times. Yeah, I right. think that's what happens. Yeah. And the material, for example, in the first book, it's set in the same year that Maggie was killed. Um, it, it I I try to do the seven, the um the warning signs of abusive relationships. She missed a couple of them, uh, more so that he never physically assaulted her before he killed her. Um, and usually physical assault means that this person is capable of violence for sure, right. versus this person is capable of 
verbal and um, <clears throat> manipulation, verbal abuse and psychological abuse, but we don't know what will happen when we try to leave him. Will he go to violence or won't he? And she was in a college setting. There was a lot of, not a lot of information there at that time. Mm. It was 20, 20 something years ago. And so I tried to use that first book to sort of show that that scenario and also to show how the college did or didn't respond, respond in that situation and how it affected her family and friends. And then the second year, the second book is is 10 years later. I wanted to explore like what happens 10 years later to all these people. And then the third book is 20 years later, which I just finished last year. So trying to look at, um, particularly for survivors of homicide, which I am, uh, and a secondary victim of a crime, what's the impact long-term? A piece that we haven't explored, particularly around domestic violence, but it's becoming more common, particularly with gun violence, that access to a gun makes this more likely. And, and the man who killed my niece did use a gun. It was a, it was a hunting rifle, not one of those assault weapons, which is more prevalent these days. But in the state he, where this was in Michigan, hunting rifles are pretty accessible, mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly in the part of the country, a part of the state he was in, which was hunting country, and it was the fall, which is hunting season. So just that I, whole idea of what we could do to reduce um, this from happening, what are some of the pieces, you know, more information, obviously, particularly on campuses, and then access to guns or some kind of weapon Oddly enough, that campus where Maggie was killed had a um, zero tolerance policy for guns, except that he hid the gun and supposedly nobody knew he had it. Well, the college said that if they had any ind indication that he had the gun, they could have searched his uh, his room and found it. He bought it 10 days before um, he did. So, you know, there's lots of lots of ways to think about not just how do we help people through these kinds of things, particularly families and friends, but how do we prevent some of this? So mm -hmm. that's really what I've, I've been a writer my whole life. So, so coming through this process, uh, I really wanted to write um, not only fiction, but also nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that the most dangerous time to get out of it, <clears throat> getting out of the domestic abuse relationship, actually leaving yeah. is the most dangerous time. Yes. Right. And that's usually when the violence will happen. Right. And that, and that makes sense because you're dealing with a controlling person and many, and not, I should have put this in my resume, but I didn't. I also, since Maggie's death, uh, for about 15 years, I worked with offenders, domestic violence, male offenders, and I was doing psychoeducational groups with them. They were not men who attempted murder. They were usually men who were arrested for misdemeanors, like pushing and shoving, or, or um, the kind of the kind of intimidation that most state criminal laws will allow the police to arrest. Um, and they were sent to kind of an anger management. Let's get these kids in a room and see what what's going on with them. Well, many of them had a lot of trauma history. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot, and a lot, which didn't justify their behavior, certainly, no. but it certainly made you understand. And many of them, if you, with rare exception, when I'd asked the guys, uh, and I was doing, you know, 15 years, probably doing three or four groups a week, um, would tell me that they grew up with domestic violence as a witness, a child witness, or that they were also abused by 
whoever, mother, father, usually father or stepfather. Um, and so that whole environment just doesn't really lend a whole lot of information. And we don't really know what to do about, you know, can we change these men? Will they change? Do they have personality effects like narcissism that's never going to mm -hmm. change? And then how does that impact the children? So really trying to snarl through that. Um, and I also included part of that in my novel because I, I do have the the um, abusive man in the, the novel and sort of played with that a little bit. And who is this person and why? So all of these pieces together, when we were, you were talking from the beginning about my life, <laughs> um, um, none of these things were even in <clears throat> place or even imagined. I mean, I mean, I know particularly when I started doing this work now 40, 50 years ago, we didn't even have the words for it. Uh, mm. It was the first time that we had, you know, um, and there were little pockets in the country. Oh, what's happening in New York City? You know, they're having like a, a, a rape speak out and women were actually sitting in, in, in church basements and kind of hiding themselves away because they weren't quite sure how safe they were to Aww. say these words out loud. And I remember sitting, doing sexual assault uh, kind of talks uh, in the in the early 80s um, and being in rooms with women and, you know, elderly women in their 70s, 80s, 90s would come up to me and say, I've never told anybody in my entire life, but this is what happened to me when I was mm -hmm. a teenager, because there was no place to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And and I felt so privileged on one, on one hand, and then so incredibly outraged that we hadn't got to that part um, in, in her lifetime, you know, it sort of like was my privilege to to be a witness to her her testimony. So I think all of that is really where we are today, trying to see. Um, and there's been a lot of things that have happened since I started doing this work 40 years ago. I think the piece that was most surprising to me about what happened to my niece, um, because it did follow a pattern, one that hopefully somebody, including myself, could have stopped, but we didn't, is that I didn't think it was going to happen to my family. I, right. I really I mean, it's sort of like I've been doing this work for 20 years before, and I'd seen women from all, you know, backgrounds and races and religions and, and you know, and even some men who were abused. Um, and I thought, but somehow my family wasn't going to be touched by that. I mean, why did I think that? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that was the biggest shock. And then, you know, is it because I was more highly educated? It was because I came from a certain, you know, I grew up a certain way. No, it was just, it's, it is, it, it is everywhere. And the ability for us to control it or even to address it or uh, properly serve the people who are victims, not only the women, the children, uh, in many cases, the boys and the men, um, we don't haven't even been adequate. And I think COVID taught us that we can't even build enough shelters um, to, uh, I know here in, I live in Connecticut, the month before um, COVID shut everything down in February of 2020, it was shut down in March. Uh, in February, I was at a meeting of a statewide coalition here in Connecticut. And it was like a hotline. It was a centralized state hotline. And they had on the board, as women were called in, what the what the current status of uh, vacancy was in the shelters. In February of 2020, our shelters here in Connecticut were all full. So a month later, when we had to shut down, um, the, and then many women needed shelter even more so because mm -hmm. they couldn't shelter in, in, in home, 
um, there was no room. <laughs> so we haven't even addressed, and that's only a small portion of the women that who um, face domestic violence, uh, the ones who actually need to go to a shelter. Many women, in fact, don't need a shelter. They do need services and they do need help. But we have we've only touched those those pieces. So it, 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 no, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so I think that's you know that's the first thing that I've learned going through this process uh, in uh, in my own life, and then uh, of educating myself through doing the work. And I didn't really know why I wanted to do this work. In fact, I, I, it wasn't really until Maggie was killed that I sort of took a moment and said oh, that's why I was doing this work. It was like preparing myself and not just mm -hmm. the work I did on domestic violence, but the ability that I had to be a writer and and to really know what the where where things are and what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and um, and I think that's, a, you know, everybody has that process in their life. But for me, there were very specific times uh, like Maggie's death where the direction had to go definitely in a place that I felt was the most productive and the most purpose for me. <clears throat> That's my purpose in life. Then I have to go for it. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I can see that all the, all that happened to me before that and all the skills I had and all the skills I developed were to be put into that service. Um, and it's not easy work, but it's, if it's just what I'm supposed to do, and this is what I can do. I can't do it for Maggie anymore, but I can do it for other women. Then I don't know if that's like a gift, <laughs> uh, a destiny, but it's certainly the stars all lined up. And so, um, you know, people say to me, like, why do you do this? And I, my answer is why, why I can't not do this, like, mm -hmm. you know, and I think many of the women that work in the movement that is real, and many of them are survivors themselves. That really is their, their vision and, and their purpose going forward. You know, one of the interesting questions that I was asked on a podcast I was on was if, if left unhealed, would a person, um, with childhood abuse, unhealed childhood abuse end up in a domestic violent relationship. And I, I thought about it when I saw the question, I thought, yes, it just looks different. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean there was like some major childhood abuse as a child, but I've seen that it, to be true. Mm -hmm. And, and I actually kind of saw it in my life as well. And, um, it wasn't, it was in my first marriage, but more so my second marriage. I still hadn't healed enough to where I stepped into a full on narcissistic relationship. Mm. And unfortunately it only lasted a year and a half because he passed. Um, but I was actually planning to leave. I didn't realize what it was, what the name was, mm -hmm. but I did see the craziness and I had enough healing in me to realize that some of his behavior was so off. Um, and I remember a few times asking what the hell was wrong with him because it was some of the most bizarre things that would come out of his mouth. And now looking back, I realized, oh, he was a full on narcissist, but you know, I had to take a minute and sit back <laughs> and, and, and realize that for myself and see the actual pattern I had. Once that question was asked, I stopped at my own and looked at my own life and saw the pattern. All right. All right. I, I think, I don't know if this is statistical or this is what I've heard. Um, and it makes sense to me, particularly 
not only having worked with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault for, well, I think it, I think I did this recently because I got a Lifetime Achievement Award. It was like 50 years. <laughs> so like, it kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I've been doing this since college. Oh my God. You know, it's, in some way, shape and form, more initially um, about women's rights. And that was because I went to college in the late 60s, early 70s. And that was like right on the- Right college. in the time. Um, but I, I realized that in that process that so much of this was conversations that we had in little pieces here and there. And then we started putting together the knowledge and the and the concept. Um, and I don't think in the initial, and I'm not blaming anybody, I was part of this, but not at a national level at that point, that we didn't really construct the system to be a healing system. We constructed the system to get women out, which was not possible. And I mean, I can't tell you how many of my clients and people I've met over the years who would say to me, you know, well, I, I could have got, I couldn't have got out in the fifties. There was nothing we didn't yeah. need. Couldn't, there was not even any childcare that you could rely on if you wanted to go out and work and try to be financially self-sufficient and get away from this guy. So the idea that we have built this knowledge, but we kind of built the system in that crisis intervention mode, which wasn't, which is really important, still very important sure. you know, to get women out, get them safe and stable. Uh, if they need shelter, you know, with the COVID crisis, we actually started putting women in hotels. You know, we didn't have enough shelters. That was okay. Hotels weren't doing much anyways. During COVID yeah, that's but, true. <laughs> and then we had this kind of support group, you know, and I, I was raised in the feminist movement on consciousness raising groups. We come together as women and the personal is political. So what's happening to me is not just happening to me. Yes, it's a personal thing that I need to deal with, but you know, there's words for it that are bigger than me. So that sort of, it, wouldn't, it didn't solve my problems, but it made me feel like it wasn't my fault. If it wasn't because I didn't put dinner on the table that he slapped me upside in the head and tried to strangle me. Um, so that was, that's the next steps, how to get in that support and whatever. But when I came into this work after Maggie's death and I shifted the work I did, because I couldn't go back to the crisis intervention work, although at the time I wasn't representing women uh, in um, domestic violence divorces anymore. I was actually doing public policy work uh, in state government, mostly around child welfare. Um, but what I realized is that I couldn't go back there. Every woman in the shelter was Maggie. So that was, I couldn't, that yeah. was too emotional for me. But I then started realizing that what is this healing journey? And so I started making it up myself. And, and I realized the, the first couple of times that I did my workshop, the, my Avenging Angel workshops that I started to do um, with women um, and sort of built my Thriver Zone kind of materials was really my own healing process. What was, what was I doing? You know, what was I thinking about? And I thought, you know, well, two things I thought I, I couldn't help Maggie. So I wanted to help other women, you know, to, to move beyond. She didn't have a chance to move on. Uh, and secondly, that on my own journey, I, there's no way I'm going to get stuck. This guy's already destroyed my niece. He's not going to destroy me or my family. You know, mm -hmm. how can I? And so I got this idea about, uh, cause I, cause he also killed himself which in some ways was a gift to us because we didn't have to go through the criminal justice system, which is just an appalling place to try to get any, I wouldn't even say justice, just any kind of healing or closure or whatever the words you want to use. Uh, Cause he never changes and then he just goes on and on. Uh, but I got this, this, um, this phrase, living well is the best revenge. 
And that mm. really gave me the idea that, you know, the one thing that a controlling uh, violent man doesn't want is for you to live well, because, you know, that's why they keep you in control so that you, you know, and, and, and you believe that at some level in your relationship that, yeah, I'm only going to be economically because women, particularly in my generation, we didn't make as much money as men back then. So, you know, you had to attach yourself to, and certainly my mother's generation, my grandmother's generation, that was very clear women couldn't. Um, but, you know, in my generation, we started moving into that more economic and the younger women are certainly in that place these days. But the idea that we haven't really, so what is the healing process and how, how do we do that? And the other way I framed it for many of these women is that, you know, um, although 94 to 99% of women who come through domestic violence have also been financially abused, which means they don't have a lot of money coming mm -hmm. out and their credit's been completely destroyed. And there's lots of things that they don't have access to because they, before it was either through their, their partner, their male partner, or because they were in jobs that didn't really, you know, he wouldn't let, he wouldn't let me work more than part-time. But the idea that we could become full-fledged independent women, you know, and stabilize our life socially, emotionally, and financially was really the healing process because women who are in that place don't go back, not only to the man that they've just left because, you know, gosh, I miss him so much and I love that. The fact that we were like so economically stable and I could feed my kids every day, but also because they knew that wasn't where they wanted to be and to be themselves and be a full human being. So that's really the process that I think we started to identify more. That's really what I've been identifying. And then the women tell the story better than I do. <laughs> so I they sort of glommed on to my story because they liked the idea that something bad happened to me and I'm trying to make something good out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then they start to project their, begin to move their own story forward. So, you know, I, I, I had, I, I had a couple of credits turned my master's, my bachelor's degree. I want to go to law school. How, how do I get myself from here to there? And the women in my group, cause I have a long, I have a two day workshop that they come through. But once they come through both sessions, I have a, I have an ongoing group. So I have some of the women who have worked with me over 15, 20 years. And wow. so I've not only seen where they've taken themselves to, but their children, hopefully breaking that generational transmission of violence, or at least the idea that the trauma you mentioned about, you know, how many, um, you know, my understanding of the statistic is that, is that uh, we don't have data exactly how many, how many times women need to get out, um, how many um, children grow up, but the way I always thought about it, and certainly got reinforced when I was working with male offenders, is that particularly children who witness domestic violence or some kind of abuse, even by their mother or father, are less or more likely to become either a victim themselves of mm -hmm. violence or a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And it was played over, played out over <laughs> and over and over again. One of the things I do when the women come into the workshop is I don't have them tell me their story because I, I don't want to deal there. I make sure if they're out and they're safe and they've got supports and therapists and, and attorneys or whatever, but we really talk about this moving forward. Mm -hmm. And for many of them, they don't even, that's like, they don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> they were in survival mode. Right, right. And they've been, and they say to me, I was a really good survivor. 
You know, I could I can survive anything. And I'm saying, okay, so there's victim and survivor and thriver. So what you're telling me is you're going over around that circle in the beginning from victim to survivor, you're a high functioning survivor, and all your energy is just waiting for the next bad thing to happen to you versus now I'm not saying that it won't happen to you, but but you, but you really haven't spent a lot of time into that next phase of survivor to thriver. And there's not a lot of role models out there. Uh, there's more now. It's still... It's still, there's still a social stigma mm -hmm. to present yourself as a survivor of domestic violence, not so much as it was in the past, but there are people out there, particularly like Oprah Winfrey, who's mm -hmm. a survivor of childhood incest. Um, Maya Angelou, who, who passed away recently, she uh, she wrote, um, I Know Why Caged Bird Sings, one of the books I read in, 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 in junior high school. Uh, about her coming through her life and as a sexual assault victim. So there are models out there, but it's still not what people sort of put out there. There's um, still a lot of shame around it. Yes, a lot of shame, embarrassment. And, and it's kind of like trying to talk about it without, you know, maligning people and not that you worry about being sued, but it's sort of not my story anymore. I don't want to mm -hmm. tell that story anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell this other story. And that's what I really encourage the women to do. So they've gone back to school and started their own businesses and um, and started singing again, started painting again, um, you know, bought their own houses, um, have done things that, you know, the person I saw walking into that workshop uh, for the first time is not the person that they are today. But but it's not it's not been necessarily like overnight, but it began a prop process of recovery and healing. And that's. We didn't even have words for it, actually. When I first started doing this work, recovery meant more like substance abuse recovery. Yeah. Healing was kind of more like medical health kind of stuff. And today there's some research. Actually, what they're talking about now in the trauma research area is what's called post-trauma growth. So if hmm. you're going to go through a trauma... And, and this work, um, some of this work hmm. research actually started with um, research with veterans, particularly veterans coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan, which is mm -hmm. the most recent yeah. you know, and most and most catastrophic uh, kinds of, of injuries. Many of those men in a previous war would probably have died from their injuries because they were so severe, but model, modern medicine allowed them to survive. And then it sort of began to move. There's a psychiatrist named Dr. Judith Herman, um, who uh, is a woman psychiatrist, obviously. And she's in 1992, remember we're now in the beginning of the movement, mm -hmm. uh, sort of articulated the three stages of recovery from trauma. And she talked about what I mentioned before, because I use her language now, safety and stability, stage one, um, uh, uh, remembering and mourning, looking at your trauma history, and then she calls it reconnection and reintegrating. Mm. So it's not necessarily going back to where you were because where you were wasn't that great to begin with, but mm -mm. reconnecting to yourself and then reintegrating the kind of um, the kind of people you want around you, the kind of thoughts you want around you. So I do a lot about positive thinking. And also about the idea that you can move into a different part of your life where your skills are more valued, where you can see that you're accomplishing more and that your ability to find your life of power and purpose is really what you know you want to do. And 
and because of what happened to you, you could actually articulate that as a journey and help other people. But even that I use the word thriver is so exciting for them. Like, oh, we have a word for it. This is great. Now mm -hmm. we have a word for where- Positive word. Yeah, positive word. And it, they, begin, then they can begin to build that image of what that means to them. And, um, and then some of the exercises I use in my Seven Steps to Thriving, which is in my one of my Thriver Zone books, really begins to give them a framework for that. And one of those steps is to see your journey. I mean, they don't, some of them don't even realize they're on a journey mm -hmm. because they've been a victim the whole life. They mm -hmm. never, you know, if they know somebody who might be over there, like they're, they're just so special or they're smarter than me or something. Mm -hmm. And then to quiet that negative voice in your head, which has usually been fed by the abuser and then begin to vision a new life and begin to set, start setting goals and really making that movement forward. And then they start to role model for each other. If so-and-so in the group can go back to school and get her degree, then, you know, I could probably figure out how to get back to school. I could figure out how to, you know, I don't know what I want to be yet, maybe, or maybe I know what I want to be and I can make those steps. So I think that's the process that women are starting to understand. And it's the supports are not yet in our system. No, I, I honestly, just listening to this, I'm thinking, why didn't I think about this before? I mean, I haven't worked with the the domestic violence area per se. Um, I, I know of the shelters and I've worked with shelters, you know, where they, you know, the emergency places where they take the women, but I've never thought about um, any kind of program or anything that would help them you know, get out on their own so that they aren't going back to the abuser or going to another abuser, because oftentimes without right. that healing, they're just going to end up in another relationship right. that there's or, going to be abuse. Or if they economically don't come out of that first relationship, they're going to go back for economics reasons. I mean, you know, you got to feed your kids. Right. Uh, and and he may present it, this wonderful man who's going to take your kids in and blah, blah, blah. And that may be true. <laughs> and it may not be true. So you're back in another relationship. And I have women who tell me, you know, that first relationship, well, it wasn't, it was, it was, wasn't physically violent, but there was verbal abuse. But the second one was definitely, definitely um, uh, physically, physical, physical violence. So there's this kind of differentiation, like somehow I'm not going to go back there, but I go there. Um, yeah. So that's really what I've been trying to do now with my work is sort of put it out into the world. In fact, this morning, I just did a training for a, um, um, a program here uh, where I live and um, they are, uh, they do, they're therapists and, you know, just even talking about post-trauma growth. I mean, it, it's almost like you don't even need a word for it. You can recognize it. Some, some people come through the trauma miraculously in some way, and they find their purpose in life, but there is a process to it. Mm -hmm. And there is a way that, you know, um, and I don't think I'm the only person in the world who's figured this out, but it's certainly the way I did it was try to find something positive from it and beginning to understand that unless I, if I moved in that direction and didn't get stuck in my story every day, not that I can't get pulled back into it. Sure. I can't get pulled and I can't, you know, that's why I don't have them tell me the story because I can get triggered back from the trauma mm -hmm. in a second. But the idea and then finding those role models that, you know, boy, you know, if Oprah can do it, then I guess I can do that. Um, and maybe I'm not going to be on TV and whatever, but that's not what I want to do. It's what I, I, it's her energy. I mean, she always put out this great energy and she always interviewed people. If you ever noticed when she did her TV show, 
she'd always ask that question in some way, shape or form. How would you get from here to there? Because mm-hmm. that's the most interesting part of the story mm-hmm. is, and maybe I don't have the exact story you have, but boy, you know, I hadn't thought about doing that thing, you know, or I hadn't thought about maybe I should ask for help, or maybe I should, you know, go and and talk to somebody or get some, get some, um, uh, you know, get somewhere with an education that might then give me a better idea what to do with myself. So I think that's what I'm really, that's what's missing in the system. Not that we didn't design it well enough, but we were just working from what we had, which was pretty crazy. Um, And it's still really an important system that needs to be in place. But the criminal justice system doesn't necessarily do this. And it's not designed to do this. It's designed Mm -hmm. to punish and to deter people. But even having done offender groups for many years, the guys are like, you know, how long am I in this group? How many weeks? Okay, when I'm done, I'm out of here. And, you know, and although some of them did figure out that they had been generationally through the violence cycle and they were kind of interested um, in stopping it for their children Mm. um, because they know the impact of seeing violence and being uh, a victim particularly a physical violence as a child brought mm-hmm. them to this place where they weren't really functioning very well. And if they were real lucky, they were going to maybe stay out of prison, um, but they might not. And then that's not a life at all because that really stops you in your tracks for many, many reasons. So I think that's the work I want to do. And there are more people that are picking up on it. Some of this research on post-trauma growth has certainly picked up on it it's beginning to be seen broader than just uh than uh uh you know vets and and uh there's even work with people who have cancer because cancer is also one of those things that you have no control over sometimes mm-hmm. it's traumatic right and then you know in fact a lot of breast cancer survivors women call themselves thrivers because once they get through the the whether they have surgery or whatever to uh to stop to to get into uh remission then they they feel like they're more than a survivor. They're they're a thriver. Mm-hmm. Um, and oddly enough, there's a lot of connection. I don't. I I gotta someday. I've got to see if there's any research on this. But a lot of women I know who come through my program who are domestic violence survivors are also breast cancer survivors. That's some kind of. That's a interesting. Connection. I know. Yeah. I you know that. I mean the stress. That that's that's what that's I what I'm thinking. Mostly. That's the first yep. thing I'm thinking. The yep. stress, the the prolonged, constant stress that they were under. It it takes a lot on a lot on your body. Yeah, yeah, and that there's some kind of other vulnerability in their body or some other environmental factor. It just sort of builds on that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought that was really. They were that one. Several women have told me that um, when they went to their breast cancer survivor support group. And they went around the circle. It's like they were all like domestic violence, but pretty much. It's the same thing that I interesting. One, of the, one of the places where the domestic violence movement started actually was when women, um, I know several women have told me this story that their husbands, their abusive husbands back in the 50s and 60s uh, were very were alcoholics. And so they were going to Al-Anon meetings. And they were sitting in Al-Anon meetings with all these women whose husbands were also alcoholic. And they suddenly realized that there was something else going on in all those relationships, which was domestic violence. 
So they started to band together. And in fact, a couple of the shelters that I know around the country actually were started by women who met in Al-Anon classes or Al-Anon groups. Wow. Because they real and it made sense that particularly um, not everybody has to be an alcoholic to be abusive, but that tends to be where many men get get out of control or it may right. in fact trigger it. So so these are the little pockets that we began to see. And then, you know, and it took us how many years to even talk about alcohol abuse and mm-hmm. the impact on family and children Then it moves into. And then I think there's been more movement um, around child abuse and where some of those uh, sources are. And then also the in long term impact. So many, many people in our society are carrying around um, trauma. They're also carrying carrying through the possibility to have post post trauma growth or some kind of opportunity and if the and sort of sort of like you know one of the things i do when i take on a new task that feels a little scary to me either well i'm i'm afraid of heights so i don't usually take on you know mm-hmm. those kind of things but people you know things that are a little bit oh i don't think i can do that i'm not smart enough whatever i think about okay so what's the hardest thing i've ever done in my life and right now the hardest thing i've ever done in my life is get through maggie's death yeah, uh, it was horrible. And it took me a couple of years of lots of work in helping my brother and sister-in-law through it um, and advocacy. And I thought, no, that's that was hard. I If I do that, I did that, I can do this. So trying to find that, that uh, so your recovery actually starts to build, the skills start to build and you can, it's almost like you can step in onto the treadmill a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. And a little bit, or if you get triggered back into it, I always tell the women, you know, I can get triggered back into victim pretty easily, particularly when people are telling me their story, but then I've learned how to stay there for shorter periods of time. Okay. So now I've been triggered and now I'm feeling like, oh my God, I'm out of control. And this is the world's horrible. So am I going to stay here for 10 minutes (laughs) or is it going to be like 14 hours and maybe two Mm -hmm. weeks? Um, And it's not always perfect, but it's just that I'm more conscious about what I need to do, what I've done in my recovery that um, are skills for me that I've began to learn. And then it's also given me more opportunity to expand the opportunities Mm -hmm. so that I can see, okay, if I got to this workshop, then I did really well in that workshop and people really liked it. So maybe I should write a book about it. Oh, I don't know. That sounds good. And then, oh, well, okay, I wrote some books now. Maybe I should go on some podcasts, you know? <laughs> so it just keeps on, it keeps on building and each one is another piece of it. And hopefully I don't get pulled all the way back by something else happened, but it is a recovery process and we haven't been able to describe it well enough, but I think actually people know it they just don't necessarily have the words for it or they don't necessarily trust that they're it's going to hold you mm-hmm. know? is there something that happened to me that i wouldn't be able to recover from yeah yeah that is a, actually that question has ran through my mind because i've been i made it through a lot of stuff and a lot of traumatic stuff and sometimes you think you know you hear about some of these stories and you're like i don't know if i could make it through that one i don't know yeah i don't i don't know i i've thought about this I don't know that I could leave an abusive relationship. I think I would be able to identify it. I mean, I'm much good, much better at it these days. Um, But that's physical safety. Yeah. Um, You know, and how do you, it's sort of like a, you know, a plot of some 
Hollywood movie that has all these little nooks and crannies and, you know, is she going to get out safely or not? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have such admiration for women and then not only for themselves to get out, but to have their children, little kids, you mm-hmm. know, having to protect their children. And how do you manage all that um, with all kinds of expectations that people may or may not understand what's going on with you. And they may not, may or may not have, the police may not help you. The courts may mm-hmm. not help you. And then there's a lot of stories like that um, yeah. still today. So um, to have that, cur- but to have the courage to do it and know, but many of them talk about it this way, that they really couldn't do anything. They, they couldn't stay anymore. It was no longer feasible for them and to be a, to be a full human being. Um, mm-hmm. And so the choice, there wasn't a lot of choice, but still in those choices, there's a lot of, a lot of danger and a lot of trepidation and um, fear that they would stop at some point because they couldn't, they couldn't really do it. So with your workshop, how does it work? So, you know, let's kind of briefly go over when a woman leaves an abusive situation, she ends up in a shelter usually, Mm -hmm. or with family members someplace safe. And then does she reach out to you or it, what Um, was the process? Okay. So it's kind of, I'm, it's still in process. <laughs> um, let me tell you how it typically happens. Um, I think for a lot of the women that find me, it's usually because they've been in some kind of program, like a domestic violence or sexual assault program. Sometimes, particularly if people know about my program, like I've worked here in Connecticut for, men, for many years, that they will then make referrals. Um, and mm-hmm. I try to keep myself up on social media, uh, you know, and as best I can, because God knows that's a, always a, that's always an interesting that's a challenge, <laughs> right? A challenge. Um, and so, and sometimes they actually come out of the program, which has served them really well, getting them out, helping them get out, giving them support. And they kind of do like, okay, what, well, what's next? And so uh, sometimes people find me that way because they either ask around or they meet somebody who's knows. And so I try to get to people in the helping, you know, professions, particularly medical people, attorneys make referrals to me, therapists like make a lot of referrals to me, because I, I do uh, visioning and goal setting that usually therapists don't do. And so and and I always tell the women, you know, you need to have what do they say it takes a village, you know, so it's not True. like you come to my group, and then those people you don't need anymore. It's always sort of building your resources and mm-hmm. you make because some of them get dragged back into court on custody matters, you may need that that court advocate in the shelter program, you know, and so to keep all those those balls in, in the air. True. Um, and some people just find me by word of mouth. Um, uh, up until COVID, I was doing my workshops in person here in Connecticut only. And then when um, I was in the middle of a workshop, actually one of the, I had finished the first day of the workshop in March, of 2020 and then everything shut down and so i'm like oh and you know i'd been on a couple of zoom meetings but like you know i i'm not the generation that's supposed to know about zoom but you know i guess i could i could try that so it took me a little while but i got um the material up on um in a virtual setting and it's worked pretty well so what's been happening now is I've actually gotten women from other states, mm-hmm. gotten country, other countries, of women from other countries mm-hmm. have found me. And so I'm beginning, and because I have a follow-up group, so they come to this two-day workshop uh, on two Saturdays, it's an all-day session. 
And then if they finish both sessions, they're they're invited into my follow-up group. And that group meets monthly. And it and I also have some special events, like we have a, a, a May retreat. We're coming up into our holiday party at the end of the year. Um, and so I built this community of women. And in fact, they start, they're basically enforcing each other, reinforcing each other and being role models. So um, that word of mouth has sort of gotten out. Um, I think what's interesting about my work is that I don't think I'm the only person out there that's doing something like this, um, or at least identifying the need. And some people are doing different. I tend to, uh, my workshops are writing workshop because I'm a writer <laughs> and that's how I communicate. Um, uh, but other people are doing yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. there, there are lots of pieces. The The federal government has identified some of these as emerging innovations about recovery for domestic violence, or, or they talk it more, more broadly, gender-based violence uh, survivors. And maybe some of these should be more available in the standard programs. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is a piece missing. The problem is what I do is not funded currently by the federal or state money. Um, I can't apply for that money because I don't I don't run a shelter and I don't I don't run support groups as such. And so we haven't really completed that continuum in terms of funding. Um, I have a small nonprofit because I said before, uh, one of my very strong values is to do it for free. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to take my material and then charge women a thousand dollars for a workshop there are probably some women out there that might be able to pay that money or even yeah. 25 dollars. but the women i've worked with over the years i mean usually when they're coming out that 25 dollars will be like either i feed my kids or i come to a workshop and so i know what my choice is yeah um but trying to get that system to begin to understand there's a piece missing the piece that i've been trying to articulate because i used to work in in state government where and worked in the budget agency where people it's about money you know where's where's the best place to use the money well there's a return on investment here to run a many of the women that come through my program do not go back that means they're not going back to the shelter shelters are very expensive to run you have to have a building you have to have security <clears throat> you have to have staff there it's you know it's important and and, and we'll pay for that but that's a very expensive kind of thing and support groups, not a little less, but you know, you have to have staff. What I do is not that expensive and it's prevention. So if we could, if we could put our money at where, where it has the most use and to reduce that need for people, we'll probably never reduce the need for shelters as such, but it's a, it's a model that needs to be expanded. It needs to also recognize that recovery is a piece of the continuum and that it can help women either not return or it can make their ability to move through much faster. So women do find me, the programs find me, attorneys find me, therapists find me. Um, and when they find me, they're like, oh my God, why isn't this someplace else? So one of the things I'm trying to develop now is a train the trainer program that would allow that I could help train people as to what I do and why it's as effective as it is and then see how we could integrate it, start to build models of where would it be integrated? And maybe it's not just around domestic violence and sexual assault. I don't know. I don't think I'm that kind of a crusader, but you know, it's kind of like just raising the language up um, and, and giving people more language to say, you know, or I've met women 
who say to me, um, they see my flyer and like, oh, I wish I would have found this like 20 years ago. I figured out how to be a thriver, but boy, that was really hard, <laughs> you know? So yeah, once again, yeah. giving people more permission and understanding. So your workshop is free. Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. You know, and, and it's interesting. I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about this because I've never heard of a program like this. And I mean, I would imagine you're probably inundated with a lot of people calling you and contacting you because there isn't a lot of this out there. Right. I wonder well, if there's anything here in San Diego for that, like that. Um, I've been to San Diego. Um, I've actually been to the Family Justice Center. Do you know the Family Justice Center in mm -hmm. San Diego? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things years ago, I was um, interested, I, I had been there in San Diego and I, I did a tour of it. It was very, very new and that nobody, I mean, that was like a, that was another revolution I did, put everything in one place. Well, isn't that a great thing to do? Because these women are got enough going on to mm -hmm. go from here to there and call this person. So that was a really brilliant idea by uh, Casey Gwynn. But the idea that we sort of um, make it simpler <laughs> for people and, and to give them some sense that there's a continuum, a continuum of care. And we do that with medical you know, treatment now these days much more. Uh, there's a healing stage. There's a, you know, a stage where you need to get acute care, where you need to get some kind of step down care and moving it through. Um, I, I wouldn't say that the whole world is calling me yet because some people don't understand what I do. I mean, they yeah. kind of like, well, what's this person doing? And why aren't they like, you know, are they an attorney? And I'm an attorney. So I'm not like a social worky thing kind of person, which is a lovely profession. I have no problem with that, but I don't, you know, I don't do therapy and I'm real clear about that. What I do is motivational work. And it's not to say the women aren't motivated. They, they, they got out or they got through the crisis of sexual assault. So they're definitely motivated and they're determined to move on, but they don't know how to get themselves there. Mm -hmm. And so it's really like a, like, where are you stuck? You suck in, I don't have enough positive energy because God knows he's been screaming at me for years about I'm stupid and ugly and no one will ever take, you know, want me. Um, so I got that negative voice in my head trying to quiet it down. And then maybe their desire isn't focused enough. Maybe it's just that I, I, I need to make more money. Well, that's a great desire, but does that mean a better job? Does that mean more education? Does that mean movings for a job that you could get that is pretty easily in another part of the country? What does that mean? And then what's your fear that keeps you from doing that? And for many people, in particular women who've come through some kind of abuse, the idea that uh, the fear is a thought, not a thing. So in yeah. the past, um, a, a, so a thing would be, I'm leaving an abusive relationship he has been violent or I think he'll be he could be violent because I'm breaking the relationship and he'll be out of control. So therefore, physical safety is a thing. I've got to think about that. I've got to get a safety plan together. I've got to work with an attorney or work with the domestic violence program. That's a thing. Most of our fears are thoughts. So mm -hmm. in the past, I went to a job interview and I got rejected so now I'm going to go get this job interview and I'm going to get rejected again. Well, that's only a thought. And what do they say? You can control thoughts pretty easily. Mm -hmm. right? yep. You can raise yourself to a higher thought. Or maybe it's just that you don't have confidence because you've been torn down for all these years. So what's that? What I call, what I call our limiting beliefs about yourself. 
which may have been reinforced since you were a child. And um, and you just believe them. They're like, that's the, that's the, and then if you start to break that down. And then the other thing I teach is that you want to understand that if you get this thing done, if you break down that wall of fear, what do they say about walls going over, under, or through them, um, you will get what I call the real you. So one of the things I realized mm -hmm. in my process was, uh, although as much as I wanted to do something in Maggie's honor, um, I'm like, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a social worker. I can't do a workshop. I mean, I had all these fears and these limiting beliefs about myself. And then I realized that one of my values and that supported me and even thinking of this is that is that I I have always been a person that um, has to do meaningful work. It's like when I went to law school, I didn't even think about becoming a tax attorney or you know, that, I mean, not that tax attorneys can't do wonderful and meaningful things for people, but it just wasn't my meaningful work, you know? Right. Um, I wanted to go to law school to help women, you know, get better jobs and in discrimination and stuff. So if you give me that reward, I'll push that wall. So I think we forget about the piece that, that, that what we can feed that value that's really important. And so wherever they're stuck in this process, it's not because they're stupid or they they're not capable. It's just that they're stuck. And you know, if you were stuck in the mud, you'd figure out how to get yourself out of the mud by you know taking apart. Is it my car? Is it the is it the mud? Is it you know you know whatever? Uh, and then who can I get help to get myself out of the mud? Uh, and I think when I break that process down for them, they realize that yeah, they're stuck, but they could start to pull it apart a bit, or they could break it down into smaller tasks. So if yeah. I want to go back to school, the first thing I'm going to do is see, you know, what classes I want to take and then, you know, go talk to a, a counselor, talk to some people who graduated from that class or that, that school, see what they think, you know, see what jobs are available right after graduation. If I take this class or that class, maybe it's a two year program rather than a four year program to start. Um, and sort of breaking that down. And that's what I do. That's the piece that I sort of bring to it. And that model is when they start to see and that they do one thing and it, it's very successful. They can say, well, I think I know how to do that again. Let's see if I can break it down. And then they keep ratcheting it up, you know, from I need to go back to school to suddenly they're, you know, in law school. Yeah, <laughs> and, graduating. I mean, it's like incredible. I mean, I, and I think about that wasn't what I thought was going to happen when I first met them because they were just so bedraggled down. But but I have this one question I asked them in the very beginning that sort of perks them up a bit. I asked them the question when I had, had them introduce themselves in the workshop. If you had $10 million, and I was thinking about making it be a billion dollars now because we're now talking about billions and trillions of dollars, right? Right. Yeah. So <laughs> it comes up a lot. If you had $10 million in all the time in the world, what would you do? And because usually when we think about things that hold us back is, oh, I haven't got the money, I haven't got the time. And then they come up with these amazing things. And by the end of the session, they start to either pull that apart a little bit, or at least they got the energy of it. Because it gave for, them energy. Right. For many of them, what they usually come up with is, I want to help other people that are, have been in similar circumstances. I want to be able to 
you know, um, do and do things that might make other people's lives. Cause I know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. That could be my purpose. And Lisa gets some, yeah, gets some, the traction starts to go. Yeah. The wheels start turning and they believe more lim limitless possibilities than they believe on limiting beliefs about themselves. And yeah. that that's, that's a motivational process. Mm -hmm. And I always tell them that, you know, most people that are successful in our, in our, in as human beings are not smarter than us. They figured out how to keep themselves motivated. And unfortunately for many of many people and particularly men are still socialized. Um, that reward for them is usually how much money they make. Yeah. Cause that's, you know, so, but look at people like Bill Gates and, and uh, I don't know, George Soros, very wealthy people. Um, they, they've given their money away now. You know, it's so interesting because yeah, they, they reach that goal of being successful with make, they had a lot of money, but now they realize that that, that goal was not satisfying enough. Mm -hmm. They wanted like Bill Gates. I think he still gives away computers to almost every kind of student in state of Washington um, and there are other people who've given back in that way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they haven't, they've done it without being recognized. Um, you know, Oprah's done it with her schools and for girls in South Africa, um, because she knows what the impact of a, a poor childhood is on, on women, particularly in that, in, in that part of the world. So, so it's really motivation and it's really trying to help them see that they can get to where they want to go. That to me is a lot about recovery, although some of it still is about what's happened to their bodies. We talked about breast cancer. There's also been a lot of research and a lot of material developed recently um, at some of the premier research schools in the country about brain injury. Mm -hmm. That um, And I didn't realize this when I was representing women in divorce cases. Many of them were just so disorganized and so out of it you know, I couldn't get them to write things down and bring the papers to, to court um, that the brain injury, there's brain injury. And it you, it's not just banging somebody's head against the wall, which is certainly one of those things, but also strangulation. And, and in many states today uh, with domestic violence crimes, they actually have a separate statute for strangulation because it cuts the blood off the, the oxygen to the head and then there's brain injury. And so a lot of these women have lined up with very traditional brain injury um, kinds of symptoms that nobody identified before, including the medical profession, because mm -hmm. they, you know, they weren't in a car accident that would have caused brain injury. They weren't, they didn't fall off a cliff or something or have a spinal cord injury. Um, and, um, and that process has really helped them to not only um, feel better about themselves, like it's not their fault, but it's also helped the professional people around them to assess them in a much better way. And give them the help way. they need to, yeah. for that. Yeah. Right. So we know what to do with head injury. I mean, not, not, it's not perfect, but the symptoms are very definable just because she's not falling into one of those traditional categories, like playing professional football mm -hmm. you know, right, for right. 10 years or something. Um, so that kind of information is also beginning to flow more, not mm -hmm. only to the women, but to the staff at the domestic violence programs, to medical professionals, and and also to, um, you know, the courthouse. The judges, you know, are looking at these women like, why can't they get their act together? Well, they're mm -hmm. not gonna. Mm -hmm. um, you, you're going to have to 
address them um, in a tra trauma-informed way to say, I understand your injuries. We can still get the information from you. We can still adjudicate your, your case properly, but we're going to have to make some modifications in how we do that. You do that for other people. We do it for people who are deaf. We do it for people who are blind. That was a big, you know, revolution in our, in our culture, in mm -hmm. our civilization. So let's see if we can also look at those kind of things and how that might, that might lend to the recovery because not just that they might get uh, a better hearing in court, but they might free, like, feel it was more fair. It wasn't that, you know, the judge didn't get it. Because um, that's it, what they were living with. Right. I mean, I imagine just how, because I, I was not in a domestic violence situation like what we're describing here. And so I try to imagine just how frightening that is. And these women are alone in this, right? And and that's what the abuser does is they isolate them. And so they're having to try to figure out all this stuff. And so I just think about it's frightening enough to get to the shelter and get if they have children and get them out of there and get into that safe space. I mean, that's your first priority. right? And then you've been through all this trauma and like you said, there could even be some physical stuff going on and you're in this shelter and your whole life is just turned upside down. And what do you do? You know, right. and, and right. these, and this program, it, it's like, you're covering everything that we don't even think of like the brain injury, like who, you know, we're, we're finding out about that with, with football, right. Over right. the last 10, right. 15 years, we're realizing, oh, when you hit right. your head enough times, it, it damages your brain. And yet I, the, one of my colleagues who's been working in this area, she wrote a, I think it was an article for the Washington post. She said that the amount of brain injury by football players is so insignificant to the amount of brain injury in domestic violence and sexual well, yeah. victims. I mean, we're talking about the little tip of the iceberg and the huge iceberg underneath it, which we're just beginning to give even language to. Right. Which is so important. Not that, you know, football players shouldn't have language too, because it's it's serious stuff. And many of them have lifelong injuries that will never, never change. But talk about where the problem really is. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I love the work that you're doing and why don't you tell the audience how they could reach you? Mm -hmm. Because uh, hopefully if someone's listening and they need this kind of help, yes. they can reach out to you and, and, and get support, even more support. Right. And I'm looking for people that are interested. Uh, I do talk at conferences quite a bit. Uh, I do podcasts and people always say to me like, oh, you know, but you got a curriculum. This is great. I'd, I'd love to, I've been thinking about doing something like this, but or at least I've identified the need and I can't figure out, but I do have a curriculum that I've done it for 20 years. It seems to work. The women tell me so. Um, and it, it, it certainly has worked for me. So um, my website is, uh, is Thriver Zone, T-H-R-I-V uh, Zone, E-R, T-H-R-I-V-E-R Zone.com. And on there, you can get access to my books, the, the six books that are over here and display. Uh, Very nice. <laughs> um, and um, and also um, uh, one of the tabs is workshops on that website. You can also go to myavengingangel.com, which will take you directly to the, to the tab um, uh, on my website, which describes the workshops, has the most frequent, has the most recent flyer for the workshops, as I said, I hope I said this before, but I have workshops coming up in February or March of next year. I do them mm. four times a year right now. Um, and then the next ones will be in the fall. And then I have an ongoing group that you can join after that. Those, this is all free. Um, if you're interested in donating to my um, 
my nonprofit, there's information on the, the workshop uh, tab also. And then um, if you buy my books there, I have a special price for if you buy to buy the three three books in each series. Um, you can buy them on Amazon. I, To be perfectly honest, it's a great place to buy them, except I don't make a lot of money personally um, from um, sales on Amazon. It's just the way the Amazon world goes. Um, but it gives you lots of exposure. So um, and well, make then, sure you give me your link to okay. your website, because I do put on my website a place for the guests to go and look up books and stuff. And so okay. I'd rather you get all the money than yeah. Amazon get yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great place to have people see information, whatever, but, uh, and then I can also, if you come to my website to buy the books, um, you can also, I can autograph them for you and send them, send them in the mail. Even better. Um, so I, what I will do is put in, uh, I'll send you the link to the special, the three by three, each of the three books. Um, uh, also my three novels are up on audiobook, mm. um, which is really exciting. Um, I had never done this before. My cousin is a, um, she is a, um, uh, what do you call that? A, a voiceover artist. Mm -hmm. And she's very, very good at it. And I didn't know that until she said, oh, I can do your audiobook. So those are now up on Audible. They're on iTunes, whatever else places there are. Um, and then also on my website, there's more information about me, about Maggie. I have the warning signs of abuse up on the website. I've got a little more explanation about uh, what we were talking about today, the three stages. And then, you know, just the, any availability of... Um, I, I speak regularly. I'm available for speaking, particularly now on Zoom. That would be great. Or any kind of conferences or trainings that you'd like me to do. I just did a training for a local mental health uh, program here where I live today. So just trying to get this information out, even just talk in general about post-trauma growth and the ability for people to give get that language out there and also to begin to see what that recovery and healing process is. Um, got a couple other things that are kind of in the works. I'm trying to move into a train the trainer program and really trying to find a way to um, put this out there more clearly. I think more people are seeing the need for it. Oh, yeah. Um, there's also a lot more conversation about what this would look like if we began to. I think I think COVID, COVID gave us this idea, you know, of all the bad things that COVID gave us. I think it gave us an idea about people want to recover. You know, mm -hmm. and they they want to move beyond things, and maybe there's some some kind of a gift in that in that situation. But there's also been a lot more um, opportunity for people to see that it's not you know bad things are going to happen, um, struggles are going to happen. That's the, that's the nature of the story we all live: struggle, mm -hmm. opportunity, transformation, um, and even just getting that paradigm to feel more comfortable for people. So that in that victim stage, it's not just the worst things ever happened to me. And I'm not saying that some of these things aren't the worst thing that's ever happened to you, but yeah. there is this, you know, and we do believe that, you know, the things do, um, things rise, you know, what's the call? The phoenix rises from the ashes. We have this kind of, it's been interesting in the um, recent um, news about um, Israel and Palestine. A lot of those, you know, a lot of, I mean, the Holocaust, we, we, the story of the Holocaust, we believe that many, many people died in horrible ways, but, you know, I live in a very Jewish community here and I, there's still Holocaust survivors here. 
Um, and I, and this, that spirit, you know, that, mm-hmm. that they survived and they're thriving and, and they have lived to tell that story and they are clear with their children and grandchildren that you, you can rise above. So it's in our, it's in our mythology. It's just trying to apply it in a way that feels more personal to us and not just, oh, somebody else did that, but I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's not the same thing when you're here or there. Um, and I don't think it's that it's different. I think we need to educate more people about how it is the same and why we're ignoring some of the really serious um, human needs and problems we have, uh, including domestic violence, uh, including sexual assault, including gun violence. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just horrendous. The number of people that have been impacted, been impacted by that. And now it's happening in schools and synagogues and churches and it's just it's just it's hard to imagine that we as a civilized society like can't get some of this or Mm -hmm. or, or we if we get it we can't move you know the masters um and so i think it's the vernacular is getting much more clear Mm -hmm. um the conversation is getting much more clear and the inspiration is getting much more clear you know, um, I just had people say to me regularly, I'm so inspired by what you do. And I thinking, well, you know, but I'm inspired by so many other people, you know, um, and that's really what you want this to be is to see that the human condition is, yeah, there can be struggle and there can be difficulties, but we always transform. We have the capacity to transform, whether it's physically or spiritually, um, that, you know, that's what the human condition is. Um, and it's been like that for centuries. We're just trying to make it um, more accessible to all people, and particularly to want to people like women who have not and children who have not been at the top of the list uh, over the centuries of the human experience. No, and you know, I think that um, what's so beautiful about this workshop is it does give these women not just hope. but it really does take them in a direction of healing and growth and their life can be very different. And then they are able to pay it forward as well. Right. Yeah. And their kids see that, you know, I say to the women that they, you know, I can't forgive myself for getting in this relationship. I mean, you know, how my kids were impacted. My kids saw that this is what, you know, I got them into. And I say to them, yeah, but they also saw that you left. You know, and that's, you know, that's a role model. Yeah. So that if you stayed forever and, and there might be reasons why you did that, that was also safety, but that you gave them a chance to see that you did leave and mm-hmm. you did do something better and that has enhanced their life and you are their role model. And if you don't have that as role model, then it's just going to continue through generations. And maybe that's where you came from, you know, and that you wanted to make that change. And so in that, in that kind of change, you know, can we not just do it personally, you know, or is it a combination of personal lives and personal lives? And then, and then it just begins to be like a wave, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, and like a more, drop of water in the right. waves and uh-huh. more people like, well, if she can do that, then I can do mm-hmm. this, you know, mm-hmm. and it's no longer like this big, uh, overwhelming fear we have to overcome. It's kind of like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Let me go try that and see if that works. Mm-hmm. Um, People, I mean, other people do that, you know, and how do they do that? I don't know, but uh, we can, we can get that muscle to work too. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. A, it's, a, it's just taking thing. steps, the, the muscle memory going. Yep. Mm-hmm. Take one step at a time and mm-hmm. not allow yourself to get overwhelmed. That's, that's my yep. motto because yep. I end up getting overwhelmed real easily. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been really great. And all of your links and uh, contact information, we'll have that available for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I know if anybody's in a, you know, scary situation, they could reach out to you and you could at least give them guidance mm -hmm. as to where they need to go and what they need to do. Um, and then of course, support them once they're out. Yep. And then there's, there are a lot, there are a lot of people that want to help. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, we don't have it perfect yet, but then there isn't anything, but there are a lot more people that they, you know, asking for help is not asking for the world. Um, and I, I always say this to people, well, two things I say about asking for help. One is that you're giving them the gift to help you. And some people, that's a really big gift. And secondly, I don't know anybody that I've ever reached out to that and asked for help that said, you know, I don't think I can do that, but I know somebody who can. Or let me go find you somebody. You know, let me think about this for a minute. So there's always some, some it's, it begins a series of, of asks that mm -hmm. somebody, you know, is, is going to um, continue that chain until you get there. So mm -hmm. asking for help is a really important part of this. And there are people, and if the first person doesn't understand what you're talking about, then go to the next person because there is the, you know, these are words that now are in the vernacular um, and they are, they are commonplace words, uh, at least to get the conversation started. And then mm -hmm. it may be, there's more, there's more intricacies to your situation, but um, people are willing to help and they people want to help. help. They want to yes. help. They don't yes. want to see people in a, in a harmful situation. So yeah, ask, 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 say, 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 <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, thank, thank you so much for doing this too. I know I'm not a person that would ever do this, but, <laughs> but I so admire people like, Oh, that's really interesting. I guess I could have a podcast someday, but, um, but I think it's, it's so interesting that um, for many people, this is a really good um, communication tool mm -hmm. they may not read something or they may not come upon something but they can find something that um you know a podcast or a, a interview and that's really what we we don't know how many people what we just said can can impact. how many people we can impact exactly and the thing is i i i didn't realize it but i always wanted to have a voice I got my voice about seven years ago and, and I, this is the platform I wanted to use it on. And I wanted to be able to give a platform for others as well to give their, I mean, what you're doing is, is important. And I didn't even realize there was anything like that out there. So getting this information out there is critical. Right. Thank you so much. Yes. Um. So yes, we're, and one of the things that women have been allowed to do more so, and then my mother's and grandmother's generations. And before that, um, is to have a voice and yes. to speak our speak our mind, and so um, we have to we have to continue that. We can't we can't we can't shortchange our the what do they say the women whose shoulders we stand on. Um, you know we have to have that continue that voice, and mm -hmm. if we do that, um, the connections will really will really uh, come through because um, you know um, we are our best role models and that's really what the women's movement has been about from the very beginning um, is trying to get to get enough of those voices out there and the diversity of voices because we don't mm -hmm. know all the different um, you know combinations of people's experience that might uh, might impact them there's one thing that I you or I might have said that was we sort of did in passing and they're like oh my god that's the piece that's the piece. exactly exactly that about. little golden nugget that they yeah. you know i know yeah. that's happened to me so often and that's that's exactly that's why i try to get this information out and i get try to have good content so that people can hear about this because yeah. 
they may not ever hear about it anyplace else. Who knows? Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'll send you some that information and make sure yeah. that there's anybody who's interested. Um, you can also reach me at my um, email is susan at thriverzone.com. Susan at thriverzone.com. Or just look me up on you know thriverzone.com. It'll pop up. I'm very excited because I'm at the top of the Google search. For you worked hard for that. <laughs> I worked really hard for my, whatever they call that, SEO or something. Yes. Or searchability or something. I don't know. But um, I think it's something we celebrate these days. It's so great. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> well, thank you again. I appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Thank you.